Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, we'd love to invite you to do so. It is now the world's largest leadership newsletter dedicated to helping all of us become better leaders in every facet of our lives. Be sure to visit franklincovey.com, click on the On Leadership button and subscribe. It's complimentary. Comes out every Tuesday in your inbox around 8 o'clock Eastern time and features a different discussion, a different conversation every week with an amazing thought leader. And today, I'm getting a little bit humbled by who we have. We have a gentleman who has authored 15 books. He's been the CEO and founder of many companies. He's a business icon, has 10 million social followers. We have Guy Kawasaki on On Leadership today. Guy, welcome. Thank you, thank you. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Hey, we're grateful. Guy, you're joining us today from your beach home in Santa Cruz, where you told us you just came out of the water, right? You're um, just joining us. How, how are the waves? Uh, they're a little, little small today, so. Well, they were bigger than the five-hour executive team meeting I just left. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably have better skiing than we do in no, this is true, at least snow skiing. In fact, it snowed yesterday. So the, I'm surprised the production team is here because the, I think um, the resorts got two feet yesterday in the middle wow. of April. It's amazing. Wow. Been a big snow year for us. Hey, Guy, we're going to spend, I don't know, 40 minutes together today, for which we're enormously grateful. That's a big chunk of your time. Before I start with some of the questions, I'd love it if you would just take a minute or two and for the one remaining person in the world who doesn't know who Guy Kawasaki is, would you just kind of uh, walk us through a little bit of your history, how you've developed some influence, and then we'll get into your most recent book, Wise Guy. Well, first, I need to clarify because it's actually a, a very good story. Uh, a lot of people come up to me and they say, you know, your book changed my life. I, I was lost. I didn't have any goals. I didn't know what to do with my life, and, and it changed my life. And I say to them, well, which one of my 15 books changed your life? And they say, rich dad, poor dad. I know. And I go, <laughs> uh, so I am Kawasaki, not Kiyosaki, okay? <laughs> I, I'm the poor dad, poor dad. <laughs> I'm from Honolulu, Hawaii, which unfortunately so is Robert Kiyosaki. So we're both from Honolulu, Hawaii. And I now live in California. Uh, my career really started in the jewelry business, believe it or not, in yeah. Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And from there, I went to the high-tech business. I worked for Apple as Apple's software evangelist. So my job was to convince people to write software for Macintosh. This is back in 1983 to 1987. I left Apple. I started some software companies, became a writer and a speaker. I returned to Apple uh, when Apple was supposed to die back in the 1995 time frame. Spent the few years there again as the chief evangelist of Apple, where my job was to make sure that the Macintosh cult and the Macintosh community didn't wither away. Uh, then I left and I started a venture capital firm, again, focused on writing and speaking. And today, I'm chief evangelist of a company called Canva, C-A-N-V-A. Mm -hmm. It's out of Sydney, Australia. It is the best way for anyone to create graphics. It's an online graphic design service. I'm also Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador, and I'm an executive fellow at the Haas School of Business of UC Berkeley. And yet you find time to surf. Uh, I, you know, sometimes I stop surfing to work. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Hey, I want to start our discussion with a quick shout out. A, a friend and former colleague of ours, Charlie Lynch, who worked at the Franklin Covey Company for about four or five years. He led all of our digital and social strategy. He was your biggest evangelist. He was oh, in yeah. love with you. He read all your books. He'd open our conversations. Guy just texted this. Guy said that. And so he's the one that really turned me on to you four or five years ago. And so I want to give a shout out, shout out to Charlie because he's one of the reasons why you became so popular inside of the Franklin Covey wow. Company. So thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie, indeed. Mahalo, as we say. Mahalo to Charlie Lynch. So, uh, Guy, you and I have an agreement that today's interview is going to be a bit different. Most of the times when I'm interviewing someone, I pick out four or five kind of big ideas and I have the author answer them. But I could not put your book down and I have like 30 significant ideas I want you to talk about. So you and I have agreed off camera to On Leadership's first ever just kind of fire round, kind of fast paced. I'm going to pitch an idea to you in your book and you're going to just respond to it in one or two minutes. We're going to get through as many of these as possible because it's arguably one of the best books I've ever read in terms of quantity of wisdom. It really is kind of like you say, lessons from a life. It's, it's, it's so powerful. I'm going to shut up and just start asking the can questions. We, here we go. On we page- stop the interview there? I'm like, I'm happy right here. There's like, we can end it right now. <laughs> Let's rock and I'm roll. Page, page 15, you talk about uh, be a hard ass. And your point is if you're yeah. a coach, a teacher, a mentor, the future cost of short-term kindness is great. Talk about yes. that. Yes, so my revelation was that as I look back over my career and my education, the people who were the hardest on me are the people who taught me the most. Mm -hmm. And I start with a story about a high school English teacher who was very, very tough. When you made a mistake in an essay, he made you write the sentence incorrectly as you did. He made you cite the rule that you broke, and then you had to rewrite the sentence correctly. So every mistake, every comma, every period, every apostrophe, every split infinitive, every passive voice required three steps. So you quickly learn to write well. And at the time I hated it, you know, what a heinous way to learn to write. But now I look back and he was probably the hardest teacher I ever had. And by far he taught me the most. Uh, that's the, the educational example. Of course, Steve Jobs is the, uh, the job, the work experience example, because Steve Jobs was a frightening person for work for, very, very difficult, uh, didn't suffer any fools, did not hesitate to you know, call a spade a spade. And I lived in fear of him <laughs> when I worked there. And I look back now and I have absolutely no regrets about working for Steve Jobs. I think it was one of the most important periods of my life. I learned so much from him. So between Steve Jobs and my English teacher, Harold Keebles, I learned that, you know, when you're in the position of mentoring, of giving advice, don't hold yourself back. It's, you're, you're not doing anybody a favor by, you know, trying to soften things up and always being positive and, you know, that kind of touchy-feely stuff. You should just tell it like it is because in the long run, it's the best way. In fact, you've advised me on page 14 to eliminate the word very and all of my <laughs> adverbs in my writing. I'm going to take that advice. So <laughs> let's keep okay. going. We've got a lot more. Thank the people who helped you achieve results before they are gone. Yes. So the example in my book is the sixth grade teacher. Again, education, education was so important to me. 
a sixth grade teacher in Kalihi Elementary, elementary school, lower middle class part of Hawaii. And she pulled my parents aside one day and told my parents, you have got to get guy out of the public school system. He needs a more challenging academic track, get him into a private school. And you know, the rest is history. And so if it were not for her care for me, her concern for me, her willingness to tell my parents what to do, uh, who knows where I would be. And she changed the arc of my life because I went from this elementary school that was public to a private high school to Stanford to Apple and the rest is history. And you know what, one of my big regrets is that I never really figured this out till she was long gone. Hmm. You share a great story about your uncle in here in a, in a one-time scenario that has kind of yeah. haunted you for life. You talk about, except that people aren't good or bad. Good people do bad things, bad people do good things. Yeah. Expand on that. Yeah, so I won't tell you which uncle right. to, to protect the guilty, but one day my uncle and I went to a hardware store because he needed a few screws. And he opened up one of those plastic screw containers, took a couple, put it in his pocket, and we walked out. And I was just incredulous. Basically, I was accomplice to shoplifting. And this was the uncle that you know, took me to the zoo, took me to movies, uh, like was my best bud, and, you know, just like my hero. And he, he basically committed a crime. And it took me a long time to, to come to grips with the fact that my uncle was a shoplifter and so the wisdom there is that you know good people do bad things and bad people probably good do good things nobody's black and white this might be my favorite one that's only three or four in but you talk yeah. about don't worry about what motivates you what's yeah. important is that you are motivated and you kind of gave me permission to be not shameful of what motivates me talk about that yeah well, you know the, the Sandra Bullock movie where she's an undercover FBI agent and she's in the Miss Universe contest or Miss America contest or something, and they all have to come up with this, this statement, right, this personal statement, and it all has to be about world peace and making the world a place and, you know, all this kind of woo-woo uh, kind of stuff. And so I think many people, when they explain what motivates them, they, they go into this beauty contest mode where I wanted to make the world better place. I wanted to, you know, uh, empower people. I wanted to do this and that. And in my book, I tell you that there are several things that motivated me. One is I was actually physically robbed twice in my youth yep. and both at a, a bus station and on a public transit bus. And so there were that, there was that. And then when I was in high school, uh, I don't know how some family friend gave me a ride in a, in a Porsche 911. And then when I was in college, I went home with my roommate who came from a very wealthy family in Arizona. And one night after dinner, his mother asked me to drive her Ferrari Daytona home. And so I tell you all these stories because, you know, I wish I could tell you that I'm like Sandra Bullock and, and a Miss Universe contest uh, essay and all that. And I wanted to change the world but honestly i just wanted to change the car um and so the lesson that i learned is listen you know as as insipid as materialistic as being motivated by wanting a great car or not living where you're getting robbed uh did it matter i mean those two things 
motivated me to study hard and work hard and, you know, make me what I am today. And so my lesson is it doesn't matter what motivates you as long as you are motivated. Well, the next point of that was this concept of embrace the inspiration of people's success. You've got a great story about the, I think it was the founder of Ask Group. Will you share that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I definitely, ha I debated whether to put this story in. Oh, it's in, great. In <laughs> Let me just tell you, in all of your next 15 books, do not filter yourself. Put every story in because they are captivating, they're inspiring, they're validating. Um, okay. Do not censor yourself, sir. Okay. Let so, guy be guy. As people are, you know, rapidly catching on, this is a book of stories of my life that shaped my life. And, and each of them contain a lesson that I hope can apply to their life. Um, I've also had great reception for the book by, from parents because parents say, you know, I want to teach my kid that. They won't listen to me. I'm just going to have them read your book. So anyway, uh, the story goes that when I was at Apple, uh, there was a very famous female entrepreneur named Sandra Kurtzig. She started a computer software company called Ask Computer. And she was a Macintosh user. And somehow I found out that she was having real problems with her Macintosh. So, you know, her being a VIP, I went to her house to help her fix her Macintosh. And so she sits me down at her Macintosh and the screen wakes up and the application that is front and center is Quicken. And I also use Quicken, so I know exactly where the current balance of a checking account is in Quicken. It's in that lower right-hand corner. So, you know, could I resist immediately looking to <laughs> the window and figuring out that she had a quarter million dollars in her checking account? And so at the time, you know, my checking account was either positive or negative. It wasn't, you know, 200 or 500,000, it was zero or negative one. And I looked at that and I walked out of that house and I said, you know what? Someday my checking account is going to have quarter million dollars. So that was another motivating factor in my life. <laughs> Guy, talk about the connection between Jackie Chan and Bougainvilleas. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's actually two stories there. And it's about not taking offense, taking the high road, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, so the Jackie Chan story. So about 15 or 20 years ago, I had a Porsche 911. I finally realized my dream, did change the car. And I'm stopped on El Camino in Menlo Park. I look over to my left. There's a car with four teenage girls. They're making eye, they're making eye contact. They're giggling and laughing. And the girl in the front seat says, roll down your window. So I rolled down my window. And I'm like smug as a bug in a rug. I'm thinking, oh, I've truly arrived. They know me as the Macintosh evangelist, the writer, the speaker, the entrepreneur, you know, all this kind of good stuff. So I wrote out the window. She sticks her head out. I stick my head out. And she says, are you Jackie Chan? <laughs> <laughs> and so ever since that day, another motivation factor for me was that someday yeah, Jackie Chan is in his... Mercedes S-Class or his Bentley or whatever he drives. And some girl asks him to roll down his window. And she says to him, are you Guy Kawasaki? <laughs> so that's story number one. Story number two, I'm uh, living in San Francisco, very nice part of San Francisco uh, called Cow Hollow. It's where Union Street dead ends into the Presidio. And I was in front of our house 
cutting the bougainvilleas. And this older white woman comes up to me and says, do you do lawns too? And <laughs> I just, I jumped on her. I said, oh, so I'm Japanese American. So you assume I'm the, law, the yard man, right? Because all Japanese Americans are yard men. She goes, no, 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 no. You know, you're just doing such a great job. I wanted to know if you do lawns too. So, you know, I could call that the end of the story right there, but wait, it gets better. So a couple of weeks later, my father visits my father is second generation Japanese American. I'm third generation Japanese American. He served in the US Army, the whole thing. So I fully expect him to go off on this, right? You know, how dare she ask my son if he's the yard man? He went to Stanford, he worked for Apple, he's written five books. You know, what's wrong with these people? Instead, he says to me, you know, son, in Cow Hollow, a Japanese guy cutting the hedge mathematically you probably were the yard man so get over it don't look for a problem where there is none give people the benefit of the doubt take the high road use humor laugh at it don't make yourself crazy and those two stories were very formative in my life and, and kind of the culmination of that chapter too is you talk about victimhood right um, um, kind of tie that story into the the challenge of having a victim paradigm what happens to you yes so the the story that i use to explain the victim paradigm is i once interviewed condoleezza rice and condoleezza rice was uh, secretary of state for george bush and uh, she is black she's from alabama and in my interview we got on the topic of victims and i said you know you're from alabama you grew up during the Bull Connor days where you know, German shepherds and fire hoses were used to brutalize black people. You know, has that affected you? And, and you know, how, how did you get past that? And her basic message was, you know, guy, you could make the case that black people were victims back then. But she said to me, you know, if you start believing you're a victim and that you're not in control of your own destiny, that you cannot control the outcome of your life, that you're powerless. If you start believing that, you will become the victim. So the key is that even if you are a victim, you should believe you're a victim. Because once you believe you're a victim, you truly will become a victim. And also a very important lesson in my life. Guy, let's move to another wisdom you offer of, of hundreds in the book about quitting. And you talk yeah. about don't fear the impact of quitting and the, and the power that quitting can or can't have on you. Riff on yes. that. Yes. So uh, obviously I'm Asian American and, you know, Asian Americans, they, they start taking violin at age two. They're, you know, taking calculus at age five. You know, it's the whole thing, right? And so I, I went to Stanford. My father and mother had never gone to college. So I was the first generation to go to college. Uh, in, in our family. And I got into a law school and I went to a law school. My father was a state senator in Hawaii, even though he had not gone to college and was not a lawyer, but he was a, a state senator. And so it was kind of his dream that his son get a law degree. So I go to UC Davis Law School and I just hated it. I, I just could not stand law school. So I quit. And I really thought that that would be the end of the world that you know, my parents would disown me, that 2,000 years of my ancestors would be turning over in their graves because 
they worked so hard to get me to this point and then I went to law school and quit after two weeks. And then, yeah, and the, of course the fear is that, you know, you quit law school, next thing you know, you quit your job, you know, you like your, your whole life goes down the toilet because once you're a quitter, you're always a quitter. And uh, to better amazement, I told my parents this and my father basically said to me, you know what? It's fine that you quit. Just make something of your life. Make something of your life by your mid-20s and everything will be fine. It's okay that you quit law school. And that was another big moment in my life. And, you know, come to find out, I, I, I didn't quit. It wasn't a slippery slope. I, I don't know if I quit another thing the rest of my life. So, so um, I, I, in many cases, it takes courage to quit. Guy, the book is a great leadership book. It's a great life lesson book. It's a superb business book. It's clearly a parenting book, whether you meant it to be or not. You talk a lot about your parents in here, your dad. What, were the, what was the biggest impact your dad's had on you? Oh, boy. I, my, my father, maybe the most important lesson that he taught me is the concept of noblesse oblige, which is that you know, when you are fortunate, when you are uh, lucky, when, when you have achieved things and, you know, believe it or not, I mean, the, the difference between me and many unsuccessful people is luck, right? The right place, right time. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, I gutted it out. I worked hard and all that. Fortune has a lot to do with it. So the difference between me and anybody else is not that great. And so my father just hammered into me that, you know, if you are lucky, if you are successful, you have an obligation to help other people. It's a moral obligation. Guy, early on in the book, you talk about the time you almost quit Apple, and then the time yeah. you did quit Apple. And you talk about, you know, uh, quitting a job, the timing is optimal. What advice would you give people in their careers around, should they stay or should they go, and how do they know? Yeah, well, this is a very tricky subject. So. Uh, I quit Apple twice and I turned Steve down for another job. So, you know, essentially I left Apple three times. And I will tell you that, oh boy, uh, <laughs> if I had not done any of those three things, I would be worth a lot of money today. And so I think that one of the lessons there is that maybe the pasture is not always greener maybe you should stay in the same pasture and make the pasture you're in greener. Because I was always quitting for the greener pasture to start another company. You know, I, I didn't think Apple would succeed as much as it has. So, um, you know, the, the grass is not always greener. Well, that's deep. That <laughs> has me thinking. <laughs> More than you know. Um, I want you to recap the conversation you had with Steve Jobs around the mutual trust or lack of between the two of you at one point. Well, this is one of those instances that, you know, it cost me 50 million bucks, so everybody might as well profit from it. So in my second stint at Apple, towards the end of it, I was in a meeting with all the marketing people and Steve and the guy from the ad agency that came up with the Think Different commercials came in and pitched the Think Different commercials. So he ran it, you know, it was Gandhi and Muhammad Ali, and we just loved it. So at the end of the meeting, 
He says to Steve, I have two copies of the videos that I just showed you. I'll give you one, Steve, and I'll give Guy the other one. Steve says, give me both. Don't give one to Guy. And so I said to Steve, now this is in front of everybody. I said to Steve, is it because you don't trust me, Steve? And Steve, being Steve, said, yeah, it's because I don't trust you. And Guy, being Guy, I said, well, Steve, that's okay because I don't trust you either. <laughs> and so that's uh, one of my last conversations with Steve Jobs. <laughs> but it was truth on both parts. There wasn't um, <laughs> an asking, right? I mean, I'm guessing it was true both of you. You weren't trying to like one-up him. There just was a lack of trust there. Well, no, I was trying to just show him that not everybody is intimidated by you. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Great, great, great clarification. You, much of your book is a great leadership manual for leaders, not just in their own careers, but how they should inspire and mentor and coach and trust uh, and treat their the team members. You write on page 71, if you're a boss, ask yourself, are you offering employees a way to master new skills while working yeah. autonomously towards a meaningful goal? And you riff before that about why that's so important and you talk about Dan Pink and such. Talk about why that was so important to write. Yes, well, um, you know, let, let's just be intellectually honest here. That I got from Daniel Pink, yeah. and he wrote a book called Drive, right. which is a great book. And so what he's basically saying is that you, of course, have to compensate people adequately, take that as a given. But then if you truly want loyal employees who will go to the mat for you, who will stick through thick and thin, you need to provide a map, and map stands for these kind of. Um, <laughs> and I just blanked out on that. Oh my god! Um, uh, the M in map stands for meaning, right? <laughs> oh, I'm gonna give it oh for you: mastery, god. autonomy, and purpose. Yeah. Oh my god. Right. Oh my god! You're gonna cut hey, this. Hey, hey, guy! You've written 15 books. You get a pass. Keep going. <laughs> Oh, my God. So uh, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Uh, Daniel Pink is throwing up right now. So MAP stands for mastery, autonomy, purpose. Right. So mastery means if you come work for me, you will master new skills. You become a better employee. A stands for autonomy. You'll be working independently. I'm not breathing down your neck. Right. And the P stands for, you know, why does our organization product service exist? The purpose. So if you truly want loyal employees, you need to provide them with a map, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. It's a nice call out to our mutual friend, Dan Pink. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned, I think your book is a great leadership book. And you know, I've been in a formal leadership role for 20 plus years. You think I'd know a thing or two about it from being in a Franklin Covey. Just yeah. an hour ago, literally, I had a phone call with the head writer of Franklin Covey, Megan Thompson. And we had yeah. just hung up from a fairly contentious meeting about a new book that we're writing, I'm a co-author on, that we're launching. And we're in some disagreement with the publisher. It's all very cordial. What should the title be? What's the tagline? Who are the endorsers? And we're debating about the title. And we've revisited this literally eight or 10 times over the last uh, eight months. And I yeah. said, but Meg, Guy gave me permission to change my mind. On page 75, he says, changing your mind is a sign of intelligence. But I wasn't being glib. It really, I kind of thought, you know what? I think it's arrogant people who are so stuck in their, their decisions for fear of looking like they weren't right or yep. um, smart. Yep. Talk about why 
Changing your mind is a sign of confidence and intelligence. Yes, and the example in the book that I use is the announcement of the iPhone. At the right. announcement of the iPhone, it was a closed system that you could only add functionality via Safari plugins, which means you could add very little extra functionality. A year later, Apple reverses itself and opens it up, and now you can write any kind of app. So in that one-year span, Steve Jobs basically completely, utterly reversed his position. And I cite that as an example that, you know, you may think that changing your mind is a sign of stupidity and weakness. Actually, it's a sign of intelligence and strength. You could also tie this in sort of to uh, quitting that, you know, if you realize that you're in law school and you hate it and it's a mistake, the intelligent and brave thing to do is quit, not keep going until you know, you're a lawyer for 20 years and then you figure out, oh God, you know, half my life is over. It's now or never. So I think quitting and changing your mind is a sign of intelligence and courage. Um, going back to your book example, I, let me tell you something, man. Every author goes through this. That uh, it, <laughs> when I when I first started writing this book, the the title was going to be "Are You Jackie Chan?" because of the Jackie Chan story. <laughs> I thought that was a very catchy title, and my author. Uh, and my publisher kind of threw on that title. So, uh, yeah, so I've been through it a lot. Uh, roughly, I've written 15 books. I've been through it 15 times. <laughs> yeah, your book is phenomenal. It's Wise Guy. Everyone's got to buy this book. I want to skip around a little bit. You mentioned this in the opening. Your first career was a jeweler. And you kind of yes. come back to it a couple of times. I'm not sure if it was accidental or if it was intentional. But you reference it a couple of times. What's the biggest lesson you learned from being oh. a jeweler? Yeah. So, you know, people know me from my tech background, Apple, Google, Canva, et cetera, et cetera. But really, my first serious job was working in the jewelry business, literally counting diamonds. And I, I left my MBA program. I graduated. I didn't leave it. I graduated. And I went to work for a fine jewelry manufacturer in downtown L.A. when all my buddies were going to Wells Fargo and... Accenture and McKinsey and all that. I went to a jewelry company you'd never heard of. And in that jewelry company, I was in marketing and sales. And so I had to sell jewelry, finished jewelry, to jewelry retailers, you know, the Tiffany's of the world. And let me tell you something, that is a very difficult job. And I truly learned how to sell. And you know, at one end, there's Tiffany, which is just the highest end, but the jewelry business also very low end. And at the low end, what buyers try to do is they stick your ring on a scale. They figure out how much gold is in it. They know the spot price of gold for the day. So they figure out, okay, there's, you know, $50 worth of gold. I'll give you $10 worth of profit. So I want to buy the ring for $60. And so, you know, that's the kind of momentum you have to fight, that people want to buy your product for scrap value. And so I learned how to sell. And that skill has just been so valuable the rest of my life because in life, you are always selling. It could be as simple as trying to convince someone at United Airlines to let, your, let you check in your surfboard for free <laughs> or giving you Economy Plus without you or upgrading you to first class. I mean, it could be so many different ways that you have to sell when you're applying 
job, when you're trying to get someone to work for you, you're always selling in life. And so that's a very valuable skill. Guy, our time is tight. I want to get to a couple more of these. Okay. I think the other lesson that I think you learned from the jewelry business, and I'm sure it was deeper than that, was also the value of integrity. You shared this great story about the engagement ring. Will you just kind of tie that back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I left the jewelry business in about 1980. <laughs> Let me think about this. I left the jewelry business in about 1983. And I got married in 1986. And so three years later, after leaving the industry, I needed to buy an engagement ring. And uh, this is a great story. So I had relationships with retailers all over the world. And one of the finest jewelers in America is a jewelry store called Tivols in Kansas City, Missouri. So I called someone I knew at Tivol and I said, listen, I'm getting married. Uh, I need to buy a diamond. And can you send me some stones to look at? So, you know, no, can I get a credit card? No, nothing. They just put these diamonds in the mail in a box. And I looked at them and picked one and sent the rest back and paid for it. And let's just say that it was a very expensive stone. And so it was totally trust. Uh, there was nothing they had on me. Total trust. And you don't share that story in a self-aggrandizing manner. I found it very reinforcing talking about the value of your reputation, no, your lifelong I mean, brand, there, right? I mean, you, you had earned there's it. No, there's no self, and no, there's no self, I can't even say that. <laughs> Aggrandizing. <laughs> Let's keep going. I can't even say the word. No, there, there's nothing bragging about me in that story. I'm not yeah. saying that I'm, not, yeah. I'm a holier than a trustworthy person. I'm telling you the good part of that story is the class and the trust of the jeweler, not me. Yeah, I think you had a bit to do with it too, sir. So uh, I mean, yeah. take the compliment. Let's keep going. Okay. Uh, love this story about exploitation and where some see exploitation, others see opportunity. Take your time on this because I think this can change people's outlook on life. So tell yeah. this story and why this is maybe so important for people to challenge their own paradigms in every part of their life. A few books back, I had a book called Enchantment, and I crowdsourced the design of the cover. And so what I did is I put a general spec out on social media, and I said, listen, I need a cover. You know, more or less, these are the parameters, and I want to see your ideas. And you can just submit them here, and I will pay the winner of the contest, and I will judge the winner, I don't know, $1,000, something like that. And so it created a great controversy because in the graphic design business, uh, that is considered a no-no because what happens is 750 people sent in their ideas. I picked one. So 749 people didn't get paid anything. One got paid. So the graphics design business considers that exploitation that, you know, I basically screwed 749 people. My take on it is that I created a truly level playing field that I let anybody, not even, you know, quote unquote, professional graphic designers, but anybody who wanted to submit an idea could submit an idea. And I picked someone who was a student in Malaysia or Thailand or something like that, not at all in the graphic design business. 
paid them and everybody's happy, except of course the graphic designers who thought that I was exploiting them. And so I tell you this story because I think that on the way up, you have to do what you have to do. If you're a graphic designer and you can enter a contest and win not only money, but the ability to say that I designed a book cover. Um, if you are writing for the Huffington Post for free, but you get to say you're a Huffington Post contributor and you can use that as a stepping stone to a publishing deal or a paid column. Um, I have given hundreds and hundreds of free speeches. And do I consider myself being exploited when I make a free speech? Not at all, because when you make a free speech, often there's somebody in the audience who says, you know what? My wife's company is having an offsite or a convention or a seminar, and she could really use you. And that is a paid speech. And so, you know, the lesson that I learned is, you know, sometimes you have to give stuff away to get paid and just deal with it. You know, programmers write shareware. Uh, so the, I, I think if you go through life with the attitude of, I'm never going to be taken advantage of, yeah. you will not succeed. You have to take the high road that the rising tide floats all boats. And sometimes you have to give a free speech or write a free essay or write a free book or design a cover for free. And that's what it takes. Uh, you know, think of how many musicians are playing for free right now. That's what it takes. So, you know, get with it. Guy, I want you to share the story about Richard Branson and Mark Benioff. But before you do that, yeah. I skipped past it. Would you share the example of the Canadian company that you were thinking of doing some work for and it didn't work out eventually, but they wanted to pay you and did. I think this, the, the moral of that story will stick with everyone who hears it in terms of their own <laughs> reputation. Okay. So the story is slightly better than what you just said okay. because it, it, in a sense it did work out. Right. So right. I, I became friends with someone because of hockey in Canada uh, named Patrick Lore, his buddy, co-founder was a guy named Bruce Livingston. They had a company called iStock Photo. And iStock Photo sought to democratize the stock photography business. You know, at the, that point, the stock photography business was you buy for $500 a photo from Getty. And listen, not a lot of churches and schools and, you know, small companies can afford $500 for a photo. So iStock Photo's idea was we enable, you know, semi-professional uh, photographers to submit their work and then people can buy that work for one or two dollars or you know five dollars dollars whatever but something like you know the ten dollar five dollar one dollar price point not the five hundred dollar price point and so I love this idea and so uh, they're Canadian and I'm American and the Canadian law for stock options and all that was very complex so we never ever really executed a written document and fast I helped them, I spread the word for them, and then fast forward, they get bought by, of all people, uh, Getty. And they get bought for 50 million bucks. And so Patrick and Bruce, they say to me, you know, guy, we never really actually executed a deal. So what should we do? I mean, what would we have done? And I said, well, you know, at the stage we were talking, when you get an advisor, 
typically an advisor makes a half percent. Now there are three kinds of advisors. There's an advisor who's like Jerry Maguire, you know, Mr. Connections. There's Marcus Welby, the, the person, the seasoned pro, uh, the psychiatrist who's gonna help you. Um, and then there's the, you know, the guy who like can just sort of do everything and, you know, help you all around and all that. And it's very good window dressing, you know, oh my God, you know, you have him as your advisor. So there's three kinds of advisors, window dressing, Jerry Maguire, and Marcus Welby. And I said, you know, honestly, I'm kind of all three. I'm good window dressing. I have a lot of connections. And, you know, I also uh, feel the, the, the third role of you know, ha having been there and done that so they said okay so we'll give you one and a half percent of the company and so they gave me one and a half percent of 50 million bucks without any kind of agreement and that was after the fact they truly did not have to do that so the lesson there is you know there are very honorable people in the world and and uh, sometimes you just have to take a chance i i truly do believe that it's better to have a verbal agreement with honorable people than a written agreement with dishonorable people. That's the lesson of that one. And to our listeners, go support iStock, right? iPhoto. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, three stories, our time is tight. Talk about the Pillsbury Doughboy. Okay, the Hillsbury Doughboy. So Mark Benioff, who's the founder of Salesforce.com, current billionaire, you know, donates tens of millions of dollars to UCSF Hospital. I gave him his first job. He was a freshman at USC. He needed a summer job. I gave him a summer job when I was at Apple. He's a big, tall, fair skinned, heavy set guy. So our code word for him, our code name from our nickname for him was the Hillsboro because he was from Hillsboro, California, the Hillsboro Doughboy after the Pillsbury Doughboy. Now fast forward a few decades and the Hillsboro Doughboy is now the founder of Salesforce.com, billionaire. So he is the man. And that's a good story in and of itself. There's some wisdom there, which is be nice to your interns. <laughs> but there's a better story. The better story is that Mike Boych, the person who hired me at Apple, was the first software evangelist. His son graduated and wanted to interview at Salesforce. So I sent Mark a, an email. I said, you know, my boss's boss at the time that you got a job, uh, his son needs a job. Can you get an interview at Salesforce? And within an hour, boom, you know, interview at Salesforce. Fast forward a few years, my son graduates. He needs an interview at Salesforce. Within an hour, boom, the VP of HR is emailing my son. And that was a very valuable lesson to me because you know what? He was Mr. Billionaire. This is something that happened 20 something years before. He didn't have to remember that it happened and he didn't have to, you know, pay back to reciprocate for me giving him a summer job. And that was, uh, that was one of my favorite stories of the book because uh, that shows such class. Guy, there and are, the there are oh, a hundred more stories in here that I'm not gonna be able to ask and you can't share. Everyone's gotta buy this book. I've given you, or Guy's given you a 10th of it. A couple of more, please. Will you share the story about Hillary Clinton? Yeah, so Hillary Clinton. Um, I don't know where your audience lies politically, but I'm a liberal. And so I wanted to help Hillary Clinton. And um, there's two stories here. So one is I go to a Hillary Clinton rally. And uh, first I'm, I'm video chatting 
her speech live. And somebody from her campaign tells me no live video, which I'm like shaking my head. So you're telling me I have 10,000 people watching this and you're telling me to shut it off because what? Hillary has too much exposure? Okay. And then we all get in a line to take a picture with Hillary. And I want to take a picture with my iPhone because I want to do a selfie. I want to publicize it immediately. No can do. You can't use your own phone. You have to have our staff photographer take the picture, which I understand because if everybody took selfies, it would slow it down. But, you know, they have two or three millennials standing on the side doing nothing. Everybody knows how to use an iPhone. Why can't I just hand the iPhone to them? Staff photographer takes the picture. Millennial takes the picture. Everybody's happy. So that's one thing, you know, why not optimize your opportunity? The, the follow-on story is all along, I'm telling her campaign, listen, I really do believe in Hillary. I want to help Hillary. You know, I'll do whatever I can. I have 10 million followers. I know how to do social media. Let me help you. And I get the response back. Well, you know, we're covered in social media. Thank you very much for your offer. What can I do? <laughs> the rest is history. No, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying that if I had helped her, she would have won, okay? I, I, I'm not that arrogant. But still, I mean, there's a lesson there. Oh, Someone yeah. with 10 million followers offers to help you, you take the help. Yeah, well, we've all been there, right? You have a sense of, we got it covered. I was telling one of my colleagues, Drew, off the camera, you know, every leader of any organization can find themselves insulated. And if yeah. I ever run for president, Drew, make sure that I understand Guy Kawasaki's in the audience, let it roll. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You, you just call me could direct. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be on stage. I'll be voting for you. Uh, I want to no, end, no, I wanna no, end no, on no, a... No, no, no. Not going to happen. Yeah, well, let's see. I want to end on a high note. The story of Richard Branson, I think, yes. is so inspiring, and it's a great leadership story for everyone. Talk about that. Yes. So Richard Branson and I are in Moscow. We're both speaking at the same conference. He comes into the, the green room, the speaker-ready room, I'm sitting there and he comes up to me and says, Guy, do you fly on Virgin? I thought, Richard, you know, what can I tell you? I'm global services with United. I don't want to risk that. I don't even know how I got to become, I don't even know how I got to become global service. And so when I said that, he got down on his knees and I have a picture in the book and he started polishing my shoes with his sleeve. And I said to myself, this is the moment you need to start flying Virgin America because Richard Branson, billionaire, you know, Richard Branson, knight, Richard Branson, he owns his own island. He's on his knees so that you would fly on Virgin. You should probably fly on Virgin. Now, you could make the case, wow, guy, he only did it for you, but that's not my sense of the man. Yeah. I think he would have done that for anybody. And you know what? It's because of that attitude, I think that he is a billionaire and a knight. Yeah. and he owns his own island. Yeah. It's because he's willing to do what it takes. I think it's one of the best lessons in the book around just that, don't be above anything and make sure you kind of don't forget from where you came. Guy, what's next for you? Uh, what's next for me? You mean literally today? I'm well, gonna take yeah, my kids yeah, to lunch. Yeah, today, like some tacos tonight or what's the plan tonight? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're gonna make burgers. Sweet. What's next on the horizon? You got 15 books behind you. What's next? You're, you're an ambassador for a couple of brands. Talk more about that. Yeah, so uh, I mean, I'm one of the people who's not a Formula One driver in the world who gets paid to drive a Mercedes-Benz. A Canva is an online graphics design service. Yep. No, seriously, your audience should look at Canva, C-A-N-V-A, because if they need to create graphics to improve their communication 
to improve their presentations, covers, posters, social media. I promise you, in the time it takes you to boot Photoshop, you can finish a graphic in Canva. So that's what's on deck for me, Canva, Mercedes-Benz. And uh, honestly, though, the top priority in my life is my four children. I have four children, and they are the light of my life. They are the most important thing in my life. Guy, if Stephen Covey were still alive, he passed about six years ago, he would really love you. I, I think yeah. your, your abundance, I mentioned earlier, your sense of gratitude and humility, your, your desire to share the lessons you've learned, mistakes and, um, and successes is contagious, it's inspiring. I'm yeah. grateful for your time today. Everyone needs to go out and buy and read wise guy and then go buy a copy for every member of your team and study it together because there are hundreds of more lessons i didn't get to 30 of the tabs in here i think everybody will enjoy and benefit from it it's a great parenting book guy kawasaki such an honor to have you on leadership thank you and everybody remember it's kawasaki Kiyosaki. Okay? Kawasaki. <laughs> that's exactly right thank you guy and thank you all for joining us we'll see you back here next week for Bye. on leadership. Thanks, Guy.